Hi, welcome to another episode of Great Conversations with me, Nicola O'Donoghue. This week, my guest is Sasha Sanders, the CEO of Conscious Company. In this episode, Sasha shares his journey from advertising agency to corporate storyteller. We talk about the importance of awareness, how knowing yourself is the gateway to building a fulfilling life because you are better able to spot the lessons and gifts from the universe. Awareness is a key value for Sasha. He believes that through awareness and compassion, we can build a better world. I've really enjoyed our conversation and I hope you enjoy it too. This is the excellent Sasha Sanders. Sasha Sanders, welcome to Great Conversations. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you very much, Nicola. I'm very good. Very happy to see you again. I'm so grateful that you're here. Thank you so much for taking the time. I guess just to kick us off, would you mind telling people who you are and what you do? I'm Sasha, Sasha Sanders. I am a father and a husband and a son and a brother and a friend, I guess, first and foremost. What I do, I guess the word that probably best sums up what I do is that I'm a storyteller. I think I've really been a a storyteller in various forms all my working life. I started off as a copywriter in ad agencies, did that for a long time, still do a lot of writing and also do a lot of what I call culture work, which is really telling the stories of who a company is and how a company is and wants to be in the world. I think a lot of that is is about telling stories around around those things. So yeah, I think that's probably the best way to summarize what I do. Amazing. And so you know then that my question's gonna be, what is the story of Sasha? It's <laughs> <laughs> a very open-ended question, but let's see how we go. I had a very safe childhood. It was emotionally safe. It was financially secure. It was physically safe, which is quite weird to say growing up in South Africa, but Mm -hmm. I grew up in apartheid South Africa in the seventies and eighties. That's not the upbringing that most South Africans had, but as a privileged white kid, that's the upbringing that I had. We were quite sheltered as kids from the stuff that was going on in the rest of South Africa. But it was a lovely childhood for me, you know. I had a lovely family and I was at a good school. I had a good circle of friends. It was about as much as one could ask for and hope for. And just curious, like, as you say, the beauty and the value of growing up within a psychologically safe environment and home is just such a gift that a lot of people don't have. And I wonder how did that shape you when you went into the world? Because presumably when you as you were growing and you went into the world, you, I'm assuming, realized, as you say, maybe what an anomaly that is, because a lot of people don't have that luxury. So yeah, I'm really curious, like what was the impact when you stepped out of that into the world? At the same time, I had a mom who worked for the liberal opposition party in the 80s. So we were sheltered, but I guess politically aware, and we could have a whole conversation about what it meant to be a liberal progressive supporting a party in the white South African parliament. But nevertheless, we had some consciousness and awareness of the situation, even as young kids. So it wasn't completely cushy. It was, um, it was very safe and unthreatening, but there was an awareness of what was happening. I think that awareness was an important part of who I was and who I grew up as, and probably more politically aware than 
almost all the other kids that I was at school with. Again, that's relative. But I did take that with me. So that has been a part of my life and a part of my, the way that I think about and see the world, just an awareness of what some people have and other people don't have. And I think that's kind of found its way into a lot of aspects of my life. When you think back to that time, because I mean, geez, it must have been unbelievable, as you say, to grow up in, in that household and to be exposed to the people and the conversations. When you think back there to that time, what are some of the big lessons or real takeaways that, that you took on and that you assumed? I think more with regards to like humanity and relationships I'm really curious about. I think it was really just an awareness or just to try to be aware of where other people might be in their lives. And I think now it's just an awareness of trying to respect other people and be aware of other people in any situation. I get very irritated about little things when, when I see that there's a lack of awareness and a lack of respect, you know, people walking two or three abreast in a supermarket aisle. Sound like a crotchety old man, but that kind of lack of awareness of other people gets my back up a little bit. So I don't want to paint myself as a saint or anything, but I think that probably has been a part of why I went into the work that I did. I mean, I spent, you know, 15 years in ad agencies and it's, it's kind of fun, but it's not the most noble profession. And I think that I never really shook that feeling. And it was a part of why I got out of advertising and advertising agencies is because really just selling stuff for big companies. But I didn't go home at the end of the day feeling like I'd done worthy or worthwhile work, you know. Maybe it was fun and we had some laughs and I got to see my work on TV, but I didn't feel like I was making a great contribution to the world. So I think that kind of awareness I probably carried with me even through times when I wasn't acting on it. And so when you got to that point, as you say, you spent 15 years in advertising agency and when you got to the point where you started to feel like there was a disconnect, just talk to me a little bit more about that, like what was happening, where were you? What was the sort of awakening that made you move more into the path where you are now, living on purpose? It was probably a kind of a growing and a maybe a gnawing sense of wanting to do like something good, you know, and I don't mean saving the world. Just at the nine to five that I'm spending working does some good. I think there's something to be said for just having a job and earning a living is really important. And I, I don't want to downplay that. And, and especially here, we see that people don't have work. And even just having casual work, working in a garden, having something to go to every day, even though the money is not enough for people to live on, but just the value of earning something and doing something, some kind of endeavor is really important on any level. And I was doing that, you know, I had a young family, I was supporting a family. So that's all, of course, very, but, um, it's important, but I just got to a point where I wanted to do something that I felt was a bit more meaningful. And we might talk more about this later, but I didn't have great ambitions. You know, I've worked with people who speak about wanting to make a dent in the universe. And to me, there was always something, <laughs> I just didn't relate to that, you know, but I just want to leave things better than I found them in some mm -hmm. small way, if I can make things a little bit better for people and for the world. And I didn't feel like I was doing that in advertising. So I think that was what pushed me. And then I got pushed in a way because I got asked to leave a job. It was just a bad culture fit. 
I mean, I was quite happy to leave. It was the most stressful time of my life. Probably came the closest I've ever been to having a panic attack. Maybe it was a panic attack. I don't know. But then I got asked to leave that job, which was a blessing in disguise because that pushed me uh, to be a bit more conscious about what I wanted to do professionally. You know, I kind of got into advertising thinking, I'm going to give this a year and see what it's like. And at the end of the first year, I said, I'll give it another year. And after five years of doing that, I was like, well, I'm in advertising. So I think being asked to leave that job pushed me to be a bit more conscious about my decisions. And I started asking myself, what do I actually need and what do I want? Which is something I hadn't learned early in life. And so it seems so obvious that if you don't ask yourself, what do I need? How can you make decisions and how can you make choices? So I think that little kick up the ass that little being booted out of a company forced me to ask those questions and then it became much more deliberate um although mm. it wasn't an immediate thing you know it still took quite a few years to end up doing what i really wanted to do but that was a combination of bad luck or good luck of yeah. you know being asked to leave a job and being a bit more mindful about directing a professional life it's so amazing what you say because there's a few things that jump out i think so many people can resonate with the feeling dissatisfied and stuck in their life you spoke about being a father and having young children and there's a level of responsibility as you say you have to provide for your family but yet there's something there's as you say like the lack of meaning and purpose in your life that just starts to slowly eat away in a way that you don't really know what to do with you're sort of caught you're dissatisfied but not enough to be able to throw everything in the air and just run off and create your own utopia or even as you say you might not even really know what the hell that is you just know that what you're doing is not working and sustainable and then as you say it's amazing isn't it how the universe just has this ability to deliver messages and nudges in a way so I'm sure the last thing you wanted was to discover what your purpose is and figure that out in the midst of being asked to leave a job so like how did you navigate that because I can imagine that that must have been a hugely difficult period of time it's actually very funny Nicola when you say the universe sends messages because I was in that job for about two and a half years and I actually remember having a conversation with my brother-in-law one night and saying, I actually wouldn't mind if they asked me to leave. And I promise you the next day, the MD called me into the office and said, this is the situation. And she asked me oh to leave. Oh my gosh. And then we came to some kind of agreement. And I think they paid me like, like three months. It wasn't like a huge amount of money, but it gave me a little bit of a cushion. And it took, you know, probably took five years, probably more to really get where I wanted to be. But I, I kind of slowly was able to take on more of the kind of work that I wanted to and to say no to more of the kind of work that I didn't want to do. And I eventually got to a point where a lot of agencies would phone me up and say, can you come in for a week or a month? So I was still working in like very traditional ad agency setups. And I got to a point where I could say no to them because I had enough other work. I don't mean to paint all agencies as, as horrible. I mean, I had a lot of fun, but there was a mindfulness of like not wanting to be in this environment anymore and to do other kinds of work. So that took a couple of years before I could get there and I had to be quite pragmatic about it. And I love that because that's often what we don't see, isn't it? And that we don't talk about. We just look at the overnight successes. So it's like polarity, isn't it? You're miserable, quit, get the job of your dreams. But the reality is that like what you're saying, it takes tiny steps and patience over years and compromise. It feels like that's what you're talking about. You knew that the 
ad agency world wasn't for you. It didn't fit, but that was a price to pay in order to keep the lights on and food on the table. And so you knew that you were slowly working up towards building a life that worked better for you is what I'm hearing. A friend who also got retrenched quite late in life, I think he was probably close to 60, panicked because he couldn't stop working. And he came to me and he said, look, these are the three things I'm thinking of doing. And one was very much like passion driven, something he'd always wanted to do. The other end of the scale was something very like safe and he could earn some money. And then there was another option. And he was like, which one do you think I should do? My response was, you actually have to do all three really, because you kind of have to take what you can get and see where it goes and feed yourself financially and feed yourself spiritually. And I think you're right about false narratives. You know, we were talking about watching other people's beautiful lives on Instagram and, you know, watching all these 15 minute gurus on LinkedIn. And I'm, I'm sounding quite dismissive, but the reality is it's like, it doesn't happen like quickly yeah. or overnight or in a flash, you know, it happens in small steps. I had a therapist who really helped me because I said to him, what is a breakthrough? You know, you go and see a therapist and you, you're waiting for this breakthrough. You're thinking it's an epiphany that's going to change your life in a moment. And he said, it's not that a breakthrough is just a small shift in perspective. That's all it is. Mm. It doesn't happen every week, but it's a small shift. And I think it's the collection and combination of many small shifts, you know, that mm. happen in your head and in the world outside of you that gets you from where you are to where you want to be. But you have to be awake to the signs as well. Yeah, you do. And I was going to ask you, so what were sort of some of the other shifts and mini breakthroughs that you had along the way so obviously the big one was being let go from your job but what were some of the other smaller ones a lot of it was luck to be honest i mean i ended up getting a gig with a company that was really a culture like i've never experienced before very purpose-driven very smart people and a three-month contract turned into like a seven-year gig with them like almost full-time i just learned an enormous amount there and I also just getting back to ask oneself what one needs. I realized this is more of what I need and that is less of what I need. So, you know, I was more conscious about saying yes to the kind of stuff that I wanted and no to the kind of stuff I didn't want. How did you make that assessment? I'm really curious. What was the criteria to determine this is what I want, this is what I don't want? I guess it partly was about ethics and partly it's just a kind of a gut thing about what fits with me. So I'll give you an example. When I got my first job in an ad agency, I would say about 80% of the work that they did was work for booze and tobacco clients. Those were the times when, you know, cigarette brands still had big budgets and were advertising on TV, which obviously doesn't happen anymore. And then the booze I never really got away from. Cape Town, where I live, um, is where most of the South African booze companies are based. So, you know, if you're working in an ad agency, chances are you're going to be working on booze. That never sat nice with me because... I know what happens. People get drunk and then they go and drive home and kill people in other cars on the way. Or they go home and beat their wives up. So that never sat well with me. So there was a kind of a thing about what sat well with my conscience and what didn't. And I'm just using those two industries as an example. So I think it was a combination of that which I'd always had and which I guess grew. And then being in a situation where like financially, I could say no to those kinds of things. Mm. It took a while to build up my own client base and a wide enough circle of clients that I had enough work without having to do that kind of work. It's amazing as you talk, and, and I can't help but link back to 
the little bit that you shared about your childhood and you spoke about awareness and even as you speak about your ethics around working for alcohol and tobacco companies there's something at the core of that for me which is about the care of other people the impact that you're having or that you're part of in the broader world and society. You talked earlier about not wanting to save the world necessarily, but to just make the world a little bit better. And it feels like that's at the core, particularly at this point of your decision-making process. It's that real ingrained value of awareness and care for others. You see this level of connectedness, I think, in all of us that maybe a lot of people are blind to. I don't know if that's resonating. Yeah, it it does. I worked with people who said this. They wanted to make a dent in the universe. And my ambitions were never so grandiose. You know, I just wanted to leave things better than I found them. And I guess at the end of my life, I would like to say that I left this earth a little bit better than I came into it or at least the immediate circle around me. And again, I don't want to paint myself as a saint. And I know that a lot of people are in jobs that they have to work because they have to earn a living and this isn't really even an option for them. So I'm very aware of that. But I just know how I would feel at the end of a day working on a big booze campaign that was really promoting drinking to people who, you know, weren't really old enough to drink at its worst. Mm -hmm. And how I felt at the end of the day when I did work that actually was going to make a difference. It was going to increase people's awareness about something important or, you know, get people involved in something that really mattered. So I guess that's what it's about. It's really about my conscience and how I feel at the end of a day's work and whether that work has been constructive or destructive or been good or evil to be very kind of binary and blunt about it. Well, what you, what you speak to there, Sasha, though, is a real, a deep, sense of um self-awareness because in order to to make that assessment at the end of the day how am I feeling what's the impact where how's my conscious sitting you have to be self-aware and so I would love to know like how how have you become this self-aware what are some of the things that you do that help you get present enough with yourself and clear your mind so that you can actually dial into your gut, ask those questions, do a body scan, whatever it is that you do. I'm just, yeah, how do you even get there? Well, I'm still very bad with body scans and what my body's telling me. So I think that's something I have to work on. But I think most people have it. I think maybe everybody has it, but it's like, what do you do with it? And how do you answer that, that little call or that little thing that scratches at you? I think everybody's curious about themselves and wants to learn about themselves and grow. And I see it in my kids who are, who are adolescents. So that's why I think it, it is in us, but it's what do you do with that? So for me, I studied psychology. So I was always interested in how the mind works and how my mind works. And I went to see a therapist quite young. I was in my 20s. I was in therapy quite long. And I remember having an aunt, an overbearing aunt telling me, what are you doing in therapy for seven years? Yeah, you need to call it, you need to make it finite, you need to know what your goals are and get out of there, otherwise your therapist is being irresponsible. For me, it was always like, it was a kind of an education, I was investing in myself. Some people go and do master's degrees, for me it was like getting to know myself. And it's a fascinating process because I can't pinpoint what happened or why it happened or there was this time in my therapy where my life changed. But I can tell you categorically that I wouldn't be here or have the life that I have were it not for therapy. I probably wouldn't have married the woman that I married. And then I wouldn't have had the kids that I had. So 
I think it's just an ongoing, like searching and trying to understand oneself. Well, for me, that's what it was. But that's what I was curious about. Other people are, you know, that do cold water swimming in the early morning or they go and do ayahuasca trips or, or whatever it is. I think whatever it is that's like scratching at you and that's making curious pursuers always lead to something else and other explorations. And I love how you framed therapy. And I agree with you. I think that for anyone who is in a position where they can access therapy, I would wholeheartedly 100% advocate for that. I agree with you. I've done many things in my life, but therapy was the one that unlocked the journey to find myself. It fundamentally transformed my life um, because I thought I knew myself and I didn't <laughs> at all. It's fascinating. And often what I see is this real fear and shame around therapy that there's something fundamentally wrong with you. You're broken. And so I love your reframing around curiosity because it resonates because that's very much how I, you know, I ended up at a, a phase of my life that was awful. And I was really curious about how have I ended up here? Like I need to know myself better. And so the curiosity overrode the fear and the shame actually of seeing it as, well, what am I going to learn here? So much to learn and that's exciting. And it sounds like it was similar with you. That sort of, it became a journey of learning and discovery and richness rather than sort of something to be afraid of. I love the way you've put that because I think often people think you go to therapy because something's happened. You've had some kind of trauma or some kind of experience or it's something that you haven't dealt with that you need to deal with actually you can go to therapy and it can be amazing just because it's a positive experience because you're learning yeah. about yourself and you're learning about new things and it's opening your head up i always saw it as a positive thing there was no negative that i was needing to deal with i'm lucky as i said i had a very secure upbringing so it doesn't mean to say i was super functional we had quite a logical family so i was quite emotionally retarded and i know that's a word that we're not supposed to use but actually mm -hmm. if you look up the dictionary definition it's a very appropriate word i was completely emotionally out of touch i didn't know how to deal with other people's feelings i was very unskilled and my eq was like terrible so that was something that i learned that was a very positive thing in my life mm. and it makes sense though doesn't it as you say i think people often think that we're broken that's been one of my biggest lessons I'm broken I have to fix myself and actually getting to self-acceptance and compassion has been liberating actually there's fundamentally nothing wrong I have to learn to just love and embrace all of me because I am yeah. and it sounds like by you investing and doing that work and being curious that then enabled you to as you say sort of give space and not be fearful to that voice that was niggling that that wanted something more for you and wanted something different within your life than where you were when you were just working in the ad agencies. Yeah, it always felt like a positive thing to me. And uh, it's probably is different for people who have had traumatic experiences. I would say to people, you know, approach it positively. It's, it's amazing to me that 30, 40 years ago, people used to speak in hushed tones about going to therapists. It's amazing to me that that's still the case, that there's still a kind of a resistance to it and a perception like, like, I don't want to go and talk about my feelings or, you know, what's wrong with me. But again, I think to me, there seem to be a lot more other options these days that people can pursue. I mean, coaching wasn't a thing really 30, 40 years ago. There's all kinds of things that people can do to explore themselves and none of it is bad. If you're shifting something or opening something small, that can't be bad. Mm, it's back to this awareness 
it's probably the one word that I would use to describe your life actually is this awareness that you speak so eloquently about both personal awareness but also then awareness of the people around you and the relationships that you're in and so what's the I guess then the link between awareness and stories for you then like where does the sort of storytelling is that presumably in service of awareness and bringing people closer together is that what drives you I love the way you frame that because I've never put those two things together. But actually, I think that is what it is about. I mean, I think if you're reading a story, if you're reading a poem or a short story or a novel, I think what makes a good story is that that story makes little observations about the world and maybe makes you think about something in a way that you hadn't thought about it before. That's that's awareness. Mm. I mean, yes, there's entertainment. Of course, there has to be entertainment. But... Um, I think like good and meaningful storytelling, that's what it does. It makes you look at yourself and look at the world and see something new in it, something beautiful or something ugly. And I think professionally, the storytelling is very much about awareness. Culture is something that can so easily be unconscious. You know, culture just develops and can often develop quite unhealthily because people don't question what's happening or why it's happening. So the storytelling when it comes to culture is very much about awareness and making what's unconscious conscious so that people can actually see this is what's happening this is why it's happening and they can be more deliberate about it i absolutely agree with you and then that for me goes back to why it's so important to be aware of who you are because who we are what goes on in your head directly impacts how you act and how you behave which then as you say directly impacts the environment around you and if you're in a workplace the culture that you create one of the things I'd love to know is what is one story that profoundly has impacted you I don't think there was a moment. I don't think there was a big epiphany for me. I think it's been a series and an ongoing bunch of small things and small shifts. And mm. and I, maybe that's the lesson is that people are looking for or maybe waiting for this big bang, this moment when everything changes in their lives. And I don't think that's really in most cases what happens in reality. In most cases, this happens and then this happens and then this happens and this is where we find ourselves because of all those things. But it's about being aware and awake to those things and conscious of those things. Otherwise, life happens to you. So it's mm -hmm. about being aware to the lessons that we're learning and the mistakes that we're making and the decisions that maybe weren't the best decisions. And Yeah. I love what you're saying because throughout our conversation I've really taken away this this lesson of having a learner's mindset actually as you say mistakes successes highs whatever it is actually just being open to and curious about what can I learn here what can I uncover if life is just one big lesson what are you opening up and attuning yourself to yeah I think if people are waiting for this this big moment that's going to be a life-changing moment and I think in a way that's Apart from not being realistic, it's almost an excuse or it's almost a defense. It's like, you know, you just have to put your big toe in the water and then put your other four mm -hmm. toes in the water and then you shouldn't have to jump in head first and completely submerge yourself. It doesn't have to be a big shock. But if you're not even putting a toe in, if you're just waiting for that big thing to wash over you, 
you're being quite passive, I think. Mm. It sounds like a passive thing, you know, it's like, oh, little things happen and, you know, they happen to me, and, but you have to kind of in, embrace it. I'll tell you a little story, which I absolutely loved. I did a, I did a Kabbalah course. It was, it was like a 10-week online course. It was quite superficial, but part of the course was that we all got this tutor who we met with two or three times over the course. And the one thing that stuck with me from the course was the story that the Kabbalah tutor told me, which is that he said, you've got to think of life like it's a computer game. And in this game, you're the character and you're looking for keys and you're looking under rocks and you're looking in trees and in all kinds of weird places. And why you're looking for these keys is because at some point in the game, you're going to come to a door and this door has a combination of locks. And if you don't have the right combination of keys for those locks, you won't be able to open the door. So that's why you have to be awake and aware of where the keys are. And this is such a lovely metaphor for life. That's why I was saying you have to be awake to the clues that life is showing you. Mm. Otherwise, you get to the door and you can't open the door because you haven't brought the key with you. Yeah. Do you not find also as well that it, this is an ongoing lesson in my life is that I think I know what the destination is, but actually... I don't. And so I feel as if it's supporting that concept of it's the journey that you go through rather than the destination. As you say, by focusing on the keys, you're focusing on the journey because actually in some ways that's all that we've got, isn't it? We assume that we are going to reach a certain age. We assume that we have the future, but actually all we genuinely really have is this moment right here, right now. And so as you say, by focusing on the keys, by focusing on the journey, that's where the true I think joy and life really happens is in those, as you said, the small day-to-day moments that often pass a lot of us by without conscious, you know, gratitude or awareness. And sometimes we need reminding of it. So we have a closing tradition on this podcast and I like to ask my guests, what is one thing that people value that you don't? (laughs) just going to sound a little weirdly worded because it's a negatively worded thing. But one thing that didn't ever make sense to me was when people would call other people hypocrites or, or like accuse them of contradicting themselves. It's like we value consistency above all things. That doesn't make sense to me because we are complex beings and we're constantly changing beings. So it's really fine to change your mind, you know. And I know that If you're in politics and you're standing by a certain ideology, then okay, then you need to be consistent and stand by what you say. But I think in life, to keep a little black book about the contradictions that people have made, I don't see any value in that. I think people should be allowed to to change their minds and think differently about things and behave differently around things. Mm. Well, thank you so much for giving me your time today for our conversation. I really thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Sasha Sanders, thank you. Thank you, Nicola, for having me. Lovely chatting. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. I'd like to thank the humans that make the Great Conversations podcast possible. My editor, Jovan Stoikowski. Jamie Jenkin, who made the lovely music that you're hearing now, and my guests for their willingness to share their personal stories. If you haven't already, please rate and follow the podcast. It's a great way to show your support and allows me to keep bringing on extraordinary guests. Sending you so much love. Bye for now.